that blessed Son who reigns at the right hand of God. And we look together at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, on page 225 in the Bibles that are beneath your chairs. And you'll notice we're following on from Ruth here. There's a purpose in that. And perhaps you've turned there by now. Let's just take a moment and draw near to God in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful again to open your word because you have spoken. And your word is powerful and mighty, even to the pulling down of those strongholds that have erected themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would accomplish that tonight, that by your word, that glorious light upon our path would be seen, the hardened heart, like rock, would be broken, that you, O God, would bear fruit in us by your Spirit working. O Lord, those who are lost, would you find and bring in. And those who are yours, would you steady on their path and cause us, O Lord, to look again to Jesus as we run the way of your commandments. Hear and help us, we pray, and speak to us even in the reading of your word. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 1, page 225 in the Bibles under the chairs. Hear God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, or Eli if you prefer, the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and it was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. 
But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is God's holy word. When you think about a productive life, what do you think about? Career advancement, money in the bank, that boat you've been longing for. Maybe we think about relationships. Things could be better. And that's a kind of productivity, isn't it? When we think about the productivity that God desires and determines that his people should have, we ought to think, perhaps first of all, of the fruit of God's spirit. There ought to be welling up within us all kinds of great and glorious gifts of God because he's the God who gives and causes us to know him and to enter into his own blessed character through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a productive life. When we encounter Hannah in chapter 1 of Samuel, we find a life that by every measure appears to be unproductive, as we'll see. She is a kind of picture, really, of what we are and what Israel was in that day, a picture of what we are in ourselves, our own condition. Think about your heart. We ought to be bearing fruit unto God, but isn't it true that we ordinarily just keep on sinning in the same old ways? And we find wrong motives creeping in. We come into a building, but not into worship, maybe. We lean on traditions. We hang on to our tribe, but maybe lack, lack the one who is the very center of the gospel. So often we quickly set Jesus aside 
so quickly does the Spirit seem to be absent from our hearts. That's the picture of Israel in this time. It's the time of the judges. The events of the books of Samuel come immediately after judges. It's kind of lovely for us that Ruth is inserted just before then. Everything that Israel has done up to this point is really a kind of unfruitfulness. Think about it. God says in the Psalms that he took this vine out of Egypt and he transplanted it in the land of Canaan. And here it is to bear fruit. What kind of fruit are they bearing? Well, they are torn apart. There is no common rule. The fruit that they ought to be bearing to God in the adoration of God, in holy living unto God, is plainly not there when you read the book of Judges. And you come finally to the end of Judges, a kind of, really a sort of dystopian book if you take it by itself. And we read in that final verse, in those days, this is the theme of the whole book, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What kind of fruit is that? Here we come to Samuel. There's no king. It's apparent by now. If you've been reading your Bible and following along, we need a king. Israel needs a king. God's people need a king who is going to lead them by what is right in the eyes of God and give to them the capability of carrying it out, which they lack in themselves. This is really our own longing when we think about our hearts and the falsehoods that we tell ourselves and the ways in which we continue to speak and think that we wish we could escape from. We need another rule, a better rule. We need a son to come who will rule and put things right. This is what Hannah is longing for. And it's as though here in Samuel we find Jesus Christ stretching back through history, from the cross, from the empty tomb, all the way to this time to exhibit the coming of his kingdom. No, not in completion, but to bring not only a desire for a king, but to begin to rule, and to rule with glory. So I want you to see in the text before us this evening that we need a son who will rule us with salvation. We'll look together at these verses, verses 1 through 8, then verses 9 through 18, then verses 19 through the end of the chapter in three parts. Hannah's rejection, reassurance, and rejoicing. We need a son who will rule us with the salvation of God. Notice in verses 1 through 8, Hannah's rejection. And the question that underlies her rejection is, can there really be salvation for someone who is barren and not producing fruit? Not producing, in this case, the fruit of a child and needing a son. Now, when you start reading in Samuel, it actually starts to sound pretty good initially. Elkanah is an Ephrathite of notable pedigree. That means he's from the tribe of Ephraim. When you think about Ephraim, remember Joshua's from Ephraim. Here's this great warrior. In fact, by the time we come to the end of the book of Joshua, here's this glorious general of God. We're expecting Ephraim is going to be the power, the leader that advances Israel into the, the full enjoyment of God's promises. Here's a man from Ephraim, Elkanah. And he goes, we read, to Shiloh, the place of worship, which is also, it happens, in the country of Ephraim. It, we read in Joshua 18, verse 1, that the whole congregation of the people of, a set of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there after the land lay subdued before them. They come to Joshua, and where he is, they set up with the military headquarters, they set up 
the place for the worship of God. They've moved it now from the place where it initially was, from Gilgal, where God's people came over the Jordan, and the name Gilgal means the rolling away. God promised he would roll away their sins. Here's this capital. It's in Ephraim. Elkanah's an Ephraimite. He's making this journey. Clearly, he's a religious man. He fears the Lord. Many people are backsliding, but he's making these annual pilgrimages that take him apparently probably two days at least. And he's even a rich man. He can feast his family. He's even married to two wives. Okay, this sounds actually pretty good. Things, maybe this guy is the one, right? That head crusher we've been looking for all the way from Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to come and rule and set things right, even in the hearts of men, could it be Ephraim? Things are not actually that well in Ephraim. Actually, if we were to go back to the book of Judges, we would read of some really major trouble. Twice, the Ephraimites threatened the reigning judge. They directly threatened him, saying, you didn't call us out to the battle. And once, one of those times, they actually launch a major offensive against another tribe, and 42,000 Ephraimites are wiped out. To put that in perspective, in the current conflict in Ukraine, Russia has supposedly, numbers are hard to get at, I know, has supposedly lost 10,000 people. Ephraim loses 42,000. This is a major loss. This is a major problem. And then if you keep reading through Judges, at the tail end we come to read about an Ephraimite who set up a shrine for worship in his backyard. And then another vignette, as if it couldn't get any worse. We have a wicked Levite. You wouldn't expect this of a Levite, but here's this wicked Levite living in Ephraim and terrible things he does. Ephraim promised so good, looked so good, but didn't live up to the promise. Ephraim was supposed to be this sort of exemplar for the rest of the tribes, leading God's people into the promises. And things didn't turn out that way. And maybe you know people that are like this. And you think to yourself, that is the shining example. That's the person that I hope my children will follow. And then their life begins to take a turn and things don't go so well. As if the scriptures are telling us it's better not to put your confidence in men. Things are not well, for that matter, at Shiloh. Eli and his sons are presiding over the worship of God. We'll get to them in the next chapter. But they're not good or godly men. And things are not well, for that matter, with Elkanah and his house. And this is really where it comes, I think, very transparently clear how bad things are. We read that he is, yes, an Ephrathite, and he has two wives, that should be the clue. Things are not as good as they appear. Think of Jacob, who had how many wives? Well, how many did he have? Two, sort of, <laughs> maybe four, depending on how you count, right? Abraham had how many wives? He has Sarah, and then he has a sort of a co-wife, and remember how well that worked out. Remember how well that worked out. It's really regrettable that in our day there have been some, even some who have been reformed, that have tried to make the claim that polygamy is acceptable because it's in the Bible. There is no place in the scriptures where we are given any encouragement to believe that it is a good thing. Quite the opposite. In fact, it's kind of a gift to you here to say, guys, like, 
this is really not good. In fact, it's terrible. Look at the misery it causes for Hannah. Look at the misery it causes for Elkanah. In Karamoja, they would say, one sickness is enough. (laughs) It really is. And more than this, Jesus Christ has called his church to be exclusively his. Not to marry multiple brides. Okay. In the greater light of the New Testament, then, this is just an absurd idea. Things are not well, though, in the house of Elkanah. And the wife that he loves, get this, there's a wife he particularly loves. That's kind of problematic by itself. But the wife he loves the most can't bear children. Hannah, whose name means grace. It's a little bit ironic. We step into this story. Here's this woman who is supposed to be filled with God's grace, and she can't bear a child. This is her affliction as she speaks of it in the middle section of the chapter. She's filled with grief. Here's a natural desire that most women, many women at least, have to produce children. This is what women are made to be able to do. And this is also God's ordinary way of carrying out his covenant. He said he would give a son. He said it would be to children, to you, Abraham, and to your children, to children's children, that his covenant would come. And here's Hannah. Just think of how this plays in Israel. Hannah, maybe God really isn't working in your life. And think of the shame in that particular culture that would come with that. And the questions of who's going to care for you in your old age. Why does this matter so much? Because God gives his blessing in children. This is his ordinary way. Children are the heritage of the Lord, we read in Psalm 127. And barrenness, the inability to have children, belongs to God's curse. I realize in these days, modern days, we think we can control everything, even the giving of children. It's simply not true. They are God's gift. And it says here, and it says it twice, just in case you missed it the first time, verses 5 and 6 both say, the Lord had closed her womb. Just imagine how that felt. Here's this woman who's supposed to have God's grace, unable to bear children because God had withheld his blessing. You can think of the questions that would have come and would normally arise in the mind of any young woman, I think, but maybe especially for Hannah. Why, Lord, what have I done? Well, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that this is actually a mark of disobedience and God's curse on disobedience. Deuteronomy seven twelve and following, because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Going on to verse 14, there shall not be male or female barren among you. Now, what's the point here? God's outward blessing in covenant with his people. His kingdom rule in the old covenant was demonstrated by the giving of children and Hannah can't have a child could it be her sin could it be Elkanah's sin could it just be that it's the general condition of Israel that they're not really seekers after God that their lives are maybe sometimes outwardly productive like Elkanah but not really productive unto God 
and bearing the kind of fruit that the Spirit alone gives. Now, as if that were bad enough, let's go a little further here, because we read something very striking in Proverbs 30. The leech has two daughters. Somebody here will remember what that is, what they are. What are they? The leech has two daughters. What are their names? Give and give. (laughs) Gimme, gimme. Three things are never satisfied, in other words. Four never say enough. Sheol, that's hell, the barren womb. Land never satisfied by water and the fire that never says enough. The proverb is telling us here that the barren womb never stops, and we don't think of it this way, but never stops craving. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And maybe you've known a woman who is consumed by infertility. It can be a devastating thing when you want to have a child and the Lord closes your womb. Here is Hannah in this deep, even in the temple here, wordless longing for a child. You can't hear her, but there's this deep riptide pulling her under in her heart. Women are meant to bear children. It's not supposed to be this way. God is supposed to bless his people. And her barren womb says, never enough. I will never give you. This sets us up to see this as it really is. This is not just a kind of, well, a sort of domestic problem that happened a long time ago in somebody's house in Israel. This is a conflict between sin and its wages and the promises of God. Here is a womb that, like death says, gimme, gimme. And here is a longing for a son who will put an end to death and to the barren womb. A powerful picture, I think, of the real condition of Israel at the time of the judges. Fruitless, barren, consumed by death. As if that couldn't get any worse, it does. Because right there in her own house, living right next to her in Elkanah's house, Hannah has an adversary every time, just to picture this, every time you go to worship, every time you go to worship, to rejoice before the Lord, to celebrate, to eat the good things God has given, there's Penina, the co-wife, constantly antagonizing her because she can't bear a child. It's like, it's like a really bad Thanksgiving, maybe. You ever had one of these? You go, things seem like they're going to be okay, the crazy uncle's going to be all right, and then politics comes out, and it's just, you know, you wonder if somebody's going to leave with a black eye, and everybody leaves saying, never again. I don't want to go back. That's what it's like here for Hannah, but it happens every year, and she can't get out of it. There's no escape. And guess what? Panina apparently feels entirely justified in provoking Hannah because doesn't it seem like the Lord's with her after all? She's the one that has the children. Children are God's blessing. This womb has been opened. Look at how God's promises are coming to pass for me. But you, Hannah, don't have. Just like the accuser, Satan himself, she's on the attack. And it comes, as it often does, at the time of worship. almost like there's an agenda here to keep Hannah from really worshiping the Lord, isn't there? So it's a conflict, ultimately, friends, over 
the gospel over bad hearts that need to be won and bear fruit. And so Elkanah comes along trying to offer some consolation here. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Maybe you recall the sort of language from Ruth chapter 4. Ruth, you're better to your mother-in-law than seven sons. Hannah, look at me. I'm your husband. I give you a double portion. I'm, you know, just, if you had ten sons, you'd never get anybody like me. Not much consolation, is it? Particularly because what we find coming out of Hannah is not just, I want a child, gimme, gimme, but a woman who actually treasures the promise and covenant of God and is expecting proof of mercy and a coming son who will rule and set things to right, even death. That's the solution here. As we enter into Samuel, as we leave the time of the judges and prepare for the coming of King David in Samuel, we are meant to see there must be a son. Not any old son. Not like you and me. Not with the wavering desires that we have for God. Not with the foolish decisions that we make. And the sins that we commit. We need one who will come, who will rule, who will crush the head of the serpent, the man, as Luther writes in his wonderful hymn, the man of God's own choosing. Okay. Reassurance. The central section. Verses 9 through 18. We see here God's promise. He will save the barren by a devoted son. Here we find Hannah in distress, distraught, going to the place of worship and pleading for a son. And she's praying, we read, to the Lord in deep bitterness. And this is such a lovely thing. This is surely one of the most beautiful and glorious instances that we have of God teaching us how to worship. Because Hannah comes with the deepest burdens, and she doesn't kind of cover them over and put the makeup on and make sure there are no streaks. She comes and she grieves before the Lord. And she is accused eventually by Eli of being drunk, but she says, it's not wine that's been poured out, it's my soul that's been poured out. I am a broken woman. You see how the Lord welcomes barren, fruitless people who desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to come and to worship. And where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go for the kind of help that you and I need? So she's deeply disturbed. All these taunts, these accusations, she's taken to her heart. She cries out to the Lord, look upon your servant. Don't forget me. Give me this son. That's the longing of God's people. Where's the son? There must be a son to come. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Joshua. It's not going to come ultimately from Ephraim. But it will come, the promise of the son, even as Elizabeth says in Luke Chapter 1, verse 25. Another woman, barren, speaking of John the Baptist, conceived in her womb, and she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's what Hannah's crying out for. Lord, take away my reproach. Take away the accusations of my own sins and conscience of Satan continually tempting. Lord, if you will just give to me your promise, I will devote to you that which I love the very most to be yours entirely. 
gave your servant a son, and he will be yours all the days of his life. A Nazarite, like we read about in Numbers chapter 6. Like Samson, another judge, a devoted man, a mighty man, he will be yours, O Lord, and for the duration of his life, as we read in verse 28. <coughs> you see what, what Hannah's doing here? Not just, Lord, give me a child so I can prove Penina wrong. Sometimes we ask for things this way. Lord, just let me have this blessing so other people can see that really I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm doing okay. She is asking not simply for a son so she can prove herself to be right. She is asking that God in his saving mercy would effect a very great deliverance. She's not just asking for a son. She's willing to give up the son. She wants the salvation that will come by the son. Can you see here that Hannah is starting to look a little bit further than her own womb and her own child? She's looking forward, not to Samuel, but to the Lord Jesus. And this is a significant moment in the Bible for several reasons, but I want you to notice something. Look at verses 3 and 11. We find who it is that she's praying to. We find Elkanah with his family going up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And then 11, where we find her praying. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. This is the first mention in the entire Bible of this particular title of God. And it means that he is the God of the armies of heaven, that he stands ready to come with all of his might and his power to rescue. He is prepared to come with the angels to deliver his people. He is the Lord of hosts. There are hosts against Israel. The Philistines are coming up. There are many other hostile nations God's people are experiencing in some measure the curse of their disobedience, their own hard hearts, and the Lord of hosts is the one to whom this prayer comes. And it's the first real sign of hope in the book. Maybe, maybe there really will be a king who can rule and set things right for a people who do not bear fruit unto God. Maybe Hannah can actually be delivered from this because if the Lord of hosts is on her side, if the God of armies is with her, then who can be against her? Isn't it striking? Maybe you've prayed out of the agony of your soul, like Hannah. Isn't it striking that when we come to the death of Jesus, he cries out of the agony of his soul? And we read that he could call legions of angels. The Lord of hosts could call the legions to his side. But heaven stands silent as the great warrior goes and wrestles down victory from the jaws of death for people like Hannah who are experiencing death and people like us too. And this is God's purpose in difficult providences that we would cry out and that he in response would demonstrate his glory, that he would act in history in answer to the cries of his people. So Hannah prays. Hannah prays 
to the one who is present to help. And at the end of the central section of verse 18, we find her faith at rest. She knows whom she has believed. Now, there's opposition from Eli. He says... Here's the de facto leader of Israel, probably not just religious, but in other ways as well. And he says, stop being drunk. Tells you a little bit about what Israel's like at the time, that this would be kind of the expectation. We were feasting. You've had too much. Stop it. Of course, it's a good message, right? Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or is it a good message? You start to see a kind of transfer taking place here because Eli, the man who's supposed to be filled with the Spirit of God to lead, makes a fundamental mistake and thinks that this woman who is crying out to God, impelled by the Spirit of God to throw herself entirely upon God and his promise, he mistakes it for drunkenness. Clearly, this leadership is on the way out. There has to be a better than this. There needs to be a better son even than Eli. And yet, his word is blessed. And we read in verses 19 through 28 of the rejoicing of Hannah because God does restore the barren by a son who will rule. We read that the Lord remembered Hannah. Verse 19, the Lord remembered her. Isn't that beautiful? Now, if you're thinking about this theologically, wouldn't it be correct to say that God never forgets anything? Certainly God never unknows anything, and all things are continually present to his understanding and knowledge. How can he remember Hannah? It's not as though he recalls something that he had to be reminded of, but he calls back to the present a promise that he has made. No, he has not forgotten his determination to save his people. He's not forgotten that he's promised a son will come and will reign. He's not forgotten any of these things, but he brings back again into present experience the word of his grace, just as it says he remembered Noah, just as it says in Exodus 2, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God in the present brings again his promise to realization. This is what he does for Hannah. This, dear believer, is what he does now continually for you. He will never forget you. You are written on the palms of his hand. Christ reigning for you. You are ever remembered. He always lives to intercede for you. He has not forgotten Hannah. He will never forget you. There will be those moments when you wonder. And yet, he will ever renew And bring into the present that promise he has made to you. And so Samuel is conceived. Samuel is born. The son for whom she prayed. According to the promise of the Lord. This is what Elkanah says. Let the word of the Lord be established. What's he saying? That it was the Lord's word. It was his promise and determination to give this son. To accept this son. And now he must be given to the Lord. And so you see the glory of God in this, the glory of God's own name in the birth of Samuel. See how the Lord of hosts fights for his people. We think it's just a barren womb. It's just a woman who's having a fertility problem. No, it's not. This is really Israel facing off with its sin and with the wages of sin, death. Hannah, out of all Israel, is remarkable, is the lone person who comes grieving, pouring out her soul, pleading with God, 
Don't forget your servant. And on behalf of all Israel, from her prayers, a son is born, the one she asked for, whose name means, it actually means, it would appear, the name of God. He bears the name of God. In this one, we can see God's mighty work. What has he done? Well, on this side of history, we see more clearly that through Jesus Christ, the coming son, sin and death will no longer have dominion over us. God looks upon his son. Death never says enough, but God looks upon his son in the grave and says enough. Isn't that a shocking moment? The resurrection is God saying death is done. What is never satisfied is filled up. I have had enough of it. Jesus Christ cries out as it's finished on the cross and at the empty tomb. The Father declares he is satisfied. That Jesus has taken the place of all of his people. The Son has come. We have through him victory over barrenness, over unfruitfulness, a life, a new life to live unto and bear fruit unto God. That is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives you. All assurance and certainty of salvation and not just a puny salvation that just kind of gets you squeaking into heaven, but a salvation that is filled up with all the blessings and benefits of Jesus, a life that begins more and more to look like him and bear fruit through the Holy Spirit. This is what this answer to prayer really means. It is the prefiguring of resurrection day. God will give his son and the son will come and he will triumph over all things and even rule death. Samuel is one of many forerunners. That means he goes ahead of to announce before the coming of a great person who will come. Samuel goes before David But Samuel and David both go before Jesus Christ. And as we conclude the chapter, Samuel is brought into the temple with the sacrifice. Here's this new son, a new worshiper. God's covenant being carried out. His blessings fulfilled. Here is the agent by which God will rule. And he is to be forever in the presence of God. Suddenly, the whole character of Israel's life, in fact, the life of the church, because it is the church in the Old Testament, suddenly the life of the church takes on a new brightness and hope because we have in verse 28 this young man who worships. A man who is given in answer to prayer to come in humility and worship. And this will characterize his life from beginning to end. And this, of course, is what our Lord Jesus is from beginning to end. The one who comes to be the son who breaks the back of death, who silences the paninas, the accusers who say, God's blessing isn't on you to give God's grace to his people, to be devoted to God, to bear the very name of God, to come and bring us fully into the worship of God. 
This is what the Son is given for. To rule God's people as we need to be ruled. And to bring us that full hope and expectation of the day when he will come. And we will be with him forever, bearing the name of God in the presence of God and every enemy silent. Isn't that good news? That's the kind of king we need.